God can. God can. God can bring massive, transformative revival to all of Seattle and beyond. God can. Amen? When I say the word revival, what exactly does that mean? I mean mass numbers of people giving their lives to Jesus Christ in a way that can't be explained. It can't be explained by merely the speaker, merely the music, the facilities. It's something else, something beyond the sum of the combined abilities of the people involved that is obviously transcended is from beyond is from the Holy Spirit of God. We see massive numbers of people who are far from God come to salvation and come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's because they walk by the building and the Spirit grabs them by the heart. This has happened historically multiple times. God can. As you look at our culture in Seattle and nationwide, and you see news of tragedy and evil that pervades, you could, you could easily be discouraged. But you know that none of this is daunting to God. Would you believe that it's been worse in human history in the past? And God has brought revival from that. We often think about American history and we think that like we all used to be a bunch of Puritans with halos over our heads. Well, that's not really the case. In the year 1726, the pervading thought about church was that people are just going through the mindless ritual of things out of a sense of obligation, not out of an expression of devotion to Jesus Christ. 1726. And then the Great Awakening comes. We've seen multiple revivals throughout American history. And you know, two of the largest of them came not from the buckle of the Bible belt, but from California. God can. There are two major cities in the U.S. in whose proximity there has yet to be a revival. One is San Francisco. The other one, Seattle. God can. How? I believe it will be the people of God humbling themselves and praying to him, asking God to hear them from heaven, to heal their land, and to begin discipling believers, to make not only disciples, but disciple makers. Did you hear the distinction? Making disciple makers. When Jesus gave the great commission, he was speaking to his disciples. He was a rabbi speaking to his disciples. And when he told his disciples to make disciples, what did the disciples then become? Rabbis themselves. The great commission is a command, but it's also a prophecy that will be fulfilled. We're going to spoil the ending. We're going to look at Revelation 21 as one of our cross-references today. And you're going to see there that the great commission will happen. The Great Commission is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The resurrected Jesus speaking to his disciples says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just like we did here, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. That's why we as a church have a book-by-book -book plan through the Bible. And Lord, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. It is God's will the disciples be made of all nations. How do I know that? Because I can read. The Great Commission 
will be fulfilled. It will take place. You're going to see representatives from every nation, every tribe, every language, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It simply will take place. Now, are you a part of the work of God on the earth? I think it begins right here. I think that revival in Seattle begins right here. What was God's word to his people, Israel? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will hear from heaven. I will heal their land. It begins right here. God, call forth sinners all over Seattle and start with me. Amen? Call forth sinners and start with me. And as you repent, as we humble ourselves, as we pray to God, we come alongside brothers and sisters in Christ, younger men in the faith, if you're a man, younger women in the faith, if you're a woman, to disciple them, to show them how the Christian life is lived out, and then to show them how to show someone else. Show them how to share the gospel with somebody else. You walk with them and you say, it goes like, it goes like this, it goes like this, do what I do. Okay, next steps. Next steps now, right, baptism, serving, giving. Okay, now who are you walking with? Who are you leading to Christ? That is a picture of discipleship. Walk alongside someone else who's younger in the faith than you and walk them through their next step. Are they saved? What is their next step? Baptism. Been baptized? What is their next step? Are they part of a group? What's their next step? Are they using their spiritual gifts to serve? What's their next step? Are they giving? What's their next step? Are they discipling somebody else? Are they sharing their faith? Walk with them and show them. It goes like this. Do what I do. And then after you've ministered to that person, you set them free, you go on to somebody else. Consider what this does mathematically to the church's growth. There's one way in which we've been growing. It's growing by addition. Praise God for that. People come here. They hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're radically transformed. They're saved. And we baptize them here. We add on to the family of God. But I want to see God do more. I want to see more Christians making disciple makers so that we would grow by multiplication, not by addition alone, as beautiful as that is. When you consider the implications mathematically of this kind of church growth versus growth by addition, it can become quite beautiful and quite astounding. And for that reason, to that end, I've enlisted some help and by the time we're done with our sermon today, I'll have a picture of multiplication for you, hence the earplugs. This kind of growth by addition versus growth by multiplication is depicted in part through the authorship of Ephesians versus the authorship of First and Second Timothy and Titus. As a church, we at Highlands Community Church just finished this past summer studying First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. Who here was blessed by our study of the pastoral epistles? I think those are amazing books, right? They're difficult books. They're difficult. They're good. Can I, can I preach a message just from the names of the books alone? Is that okay? I, I've always wanted to preach a sermon from the table of contents of the Bible. Because I believe the names of the books themselves tell a story from Genesis to Revelation, don't they? The redemptive story, the redemptive plan of God. We're in Ephesians now. We studied 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, and now we study Ephesians. Paul wrote all of these books. 
But the context in which he wrote them was different. When he writes Ephesians, he's writing to the church that he planted. He's speaking to his own beloved church, which he, along with Priscilla and Aquila, planted. Now, when he writes 1 and 2 Timothy, he's pouring into one of his protégés, somebody he discipled, and showing him how to make disciples of others, how to lead the church at Ephesus that he planted. He begins the church at Ephesus, and then he hands the reins over to Timothy. Christian, I've been walking with God a long time, wondering what is next. You've been like Paul as he wrote Ephesians. You've shared the gospel with other people, but have you been like Paul as he writes 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus? Have you walked alongside somebody else to show them how to share the gospel, to show them how to disciple somebody else? The difference between Paul writing Ephesians and Paul writing the pastoral epistles is multiplication versus addition. When you come alongside somebody else and show them how the gospel is lived out and how to share the gospel with somebody else, revival comes and the church grows. God can bring revival. And I believe this is how. In our last sermon, we saw Ephesians chapter one, and this included verses three through 14. Take a look at the original Greek text of Ephesians one, verses three through 14. This, in the original Greek, is one single, two stories tall sentence. This is all, all of it, one single sentence. This is the longest sentence in the whole Greek New Testament. Now, why is that? It's because it was a doxology, meaning it was a, it was a proclamation of praise of God. Do you remember last week's sermon? I hope you do, because it was glorious, just extolling the virtues and the greatness and the awesomeness of God. It's like Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, began talking about how great God is, and he just couldn't get to a punctuation point because he kept extolling the virtues of God and how awesome God is. So the opening 14 verses of Ephesians are, are doxological in nature. And then he transitions to today's text that we're going to study, which is a prayer for the church. Now, doesn't that indicate that Paul is praying as we were taught to pray? Do you remember the model prayer? Do you remember the Lord's Prayer? As Jesus taught us to pray, what are the opening words of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. It begins with praise for God. If your prayers begin with problems, you're going before God and you're listing out problems. And you're going before him and you're asking him for help. Now that's okay to do. The word says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. But we can forget the one to whom we're praying if we don't pray according to the model prayer, the model that Paul used in the authorship of the first chapter of Ephesians. When your prayers begin with praise, however, your whole perspective changes. God, you are the one who commanded the stars to exist, and they do. You are the one who keeps the earth spinning on its axis, the perfect proximity to the sun with the perfect amount of water and land, the perfect atmosphere protected by an asteroid belt and two gas giants out there further in the solar system. You are the one who commands galaxies to exist. And I forget what my problem was that I was praying to you about because it seems so small now. <laughs> like suddenly that thing on your calendar on Monday morning, it just, it just pales in comparison because your prayer began with praise Paul, like a good Christian, praying exactly as Jesus taught us to, 
writes a run-on sentence to the glory of God in the original Greek of verses 3 through 14, and this brings us to our text today. Look at verse 15 with me. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Look to the opening three verses of this passage with me, please. Verses 15 through 17. Use as your interpretive lens the concluding words, the knowledge of him. Okay, now in the next verse, the remainder of this sentence, Paul's gonna get more specific. But in light of the fact that some of the content in verse 17 can be misinterpreted and misapplied unto heretical ends, I want us to interpret this properly using scripture to interpret scripture. It is a beautiful phrase, but it must be interpreted properly. Verse 15 opens, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. That's important. Your love for all the saints. First John describes this love that you would have for the people of God, the love that you would have for the saints, the love that you would have for the church. This is one of the evidences brought on by the Holy Spirit of God in you to let you know that you are saved, that you love one another, that you love each other is proof that God is within you. The church is a fascinating thing, isn't it? It's one of the only contexts in which people from various strata, various walks of life, who would otherwise never cross paths, may come together and worship shoulder to shoulder and serve shoulder to shoulder. It brings people together in a beautiful way. And you find yourself, because of the work of God, because of the church, loving people with whom you'd otherwise have no contact. This love for the saints is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's one of the evidences, according to 1 John, that you can know that you are saved. This love that you have toward all the saints. I do not cease, Paul says, to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Those words, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, can be misapplied and misinterpreted. The critical clause for interpreting this paragraph is in the knowledge of him. Because you know Jesus, you know the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. It's the critical clause in interpreting this paragraph. Some manuscripts capitalize the word spirit and some do not. Both point to the same idea that the spirit of God enables your spirit, lowercase s, to understand what God is saying. Jesus spoke in parables and would say, let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And to those who believed in Jesus, they grasped the content of the parables. To those who rejected Jesus, they seemed like innocuous farming riddles. The, the opening of Revelation says, Let he who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
You grasp it because the spirit of God is within you. You, with spiritual ears, understand spiritual truths. You have then this spirit of wisdom and revelation. This speaks to an experiential knowledge of God. You have experienced walking with God, and thus you understand exactly what revelation and wisdom mean. The Floridian kid who is dying to know what snow is like. Floridian kid. You can't really imagine it accurately. You've got to go to Whistler. You've got to go to Blackholm. You've got to go to a good day at Snoqualmie. You've got to have lived in the Seattle area last year. (laughs) You have to step deep into a few feet of fresh powder and feel the crunch resonate your calf and envelop your foot. Feel the icy wind kiss your cheeks while the sun reflects off the snow to burn your chin. You didn't know that was possible, Florida kid. And then step out deep into a sculptable, malleable, edible landscape. Then you know what snow is like, Florida kid. Until then, your wildest imaginings will fall short. Landlocked landlover reading Hemingway and his descriptions of the glories of sailing. And just words, squint as you might Pine and envision as you will. You still don't know. You, don't, you won't know. You can't actually know the beauty of sailing until you and your future groomsman, Marshall, have commandeered two sunfish sailboats that are coming to dock at the reservation at Florida State, and you two have skipped the mandatory class required. You say, we got it, and they warn you of the storm to come. You're like, yeah, that's why we're here. The thunderstorm on the far side of the water, and you get in the sunfish, stab the daggerboard deep, steady the rudder, swing the jib, and let out just enough of the mains so that it catches. And then, in a silent yet violent lurch, lunges your boat forward in a way that capsizes Marshall way out there, <laughs> brings you almost to the point where the sail, the main, actually takes a sip of water, and you lean off the edge of the boat and Wrestle it back in as the thunderstorm winds approach and within minutes are across the other side. (laughs) Then, then you know sailing. Until then you're reading, you're reading Hemingway and it's just words. You need an experiential knowledge of sailing to fully grasp the beauty of Hemingway. Marriage crazed virgin voraciously devouring every premarital book sold at Lifeway, pining for your own wedding day one day, like you can't yet know marriage, not really. It's not until you have stood before God and witnesses and proclaimed your vows to this woman and swept her away to a mountain house in Silva, North Carolina and drank deep of intense romantic love that you didn't know was possible, endured, Hardship alongside her. Walk through the dank valley of bereavement, grief, and loss. Navigated the rocky crag of conflict over time to experience the beautiful serenity of an indestructible marriage after a decade. 
then, then you know, then you know marriage. Until then, it's just books. You must step into the snows of Whistler. You must taste the salty air of sailing. You must drink deep the romance of an indestructible marriage to know what these mean. You must, my skeptical friend, walk with God to know experientially the spirit of revelation, the spirit of wisdom. It is a beautiful thing to grasp once you, verse 18, have the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. When you grasp this, then you just know. You get it. You, the eyes of your hearts are enlightened. You suddenly have intellectual peace. Truly, intellectual peace. It's not that you have the answer to every question. It's, it's that you know there is an answer to every question. And suddenly appeals to authority are no longer a logical fallacy. Rather, they are statements made from the locus of logic himself. The truth with a capital T, the proper noun, Jesus, the way, the truth embodied, and the life. You know that one day every injustice will be rectified. Every question will be answered. Every twisting of the truth will be untied. All things will be at peace and perfection one glorious day. And that's where he's taking us. You know that one day, one sweet, beautiful, glorious, amazing day, you will know what it is to know. And until that day, you've been equipped with nothing short of the word of God itself. And this word of God equips you with wisdom that makes you wiser than your teacher's. Here's Psalm 119, 97. At this time, when this was originally written, the Bible was not complete as we understand it today. This is long before the authorship of the Gospels. This is long before the book of Acts, long before the book of Ephesians. When he refers to the law, he's referring to the whole word of God as it existed at that point in human history. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me how how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You step into intellectual peace because you found the authoritative presupposition upon which you've been making moral assertions your whole life. This is the rock upon, you've been, upon which you stand when you know right from wrong, when you know where matter came from, where life came from, where morality came from. Intellectual peace, the spirit of wisdom, spirit of revelation, and the knowledge of Jesus. You walk with God, and then you know. And one day, though you know him now, dimly as in a mirror, one day you will know him in full and see him face to face. Did you see verse 18's word hope? Look at verse 18, see that word hope? That's an important word. That's the hope to which we've been called. Christian, you've been, you've been called to hope. So live accordingly. You've been called to hope, so face affliction accordingly. You understand? With stubborn hope. 
face affliction accordingly. And then walk with others in that hope. Show them. Show them. It goes like this. It goes like this. Do what I do. Okay, here's how you you endure hardship. Here's how you face suffering like a Christian with a stubborn, indomitable hope, knowing that your hope lies on the heavenly horizon where moth and rust are not destroyed and thieves do not break in and steal. That's where perfection lies. In the meantime, we know that in this life we'll have suffering. We take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. That is indomitable hope. It also speaks of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What specifically, Jesse, are the glorious riches of his inheritance for the saints? What is it that the saints will one day inherit? What are these riches? Shall we peek at our presence under the tree? Look at Revelation 21, the penultimate chapter of the whole Bible. (laughs) The wall describing the heavenly city was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. What? (laughs) The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. So apparently gold is actually supposed to be pure like glass, which means like our understanding of gold is so corrupt that it falls short of the real thing. And we've been clamoring. We've been clamoring and fighting one another over something that is a cheap imitation of actual gold. Moreover, moreover, the foundation for the wall around the city, that has to be the least conspicuous, the least glorious, the least beautiful part of the heavenly city. It's not like the peak of a spire of a castle tower. No, no. It's not even at the threshold of the ark of the doorway. It's not even the wall. It's the foundation under the wall that surrounds the city. And the text says it's covered with every kind of jewel. There's 12, one for each tribe of Israel, one for each disciple. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb. We have no need for the puny sun in heaven. By its light will the nations walk. Do you remember what I told you about the Great Commission, how there will be disciples made of all nations, that every tongue and tribe and language will confess that Jesus is Lord? Here it is. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and in its gates, its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Do you know what that means? Its gates are never shut by day and there's never night. Therefore, the gates are always open. Yeah, but Jesse, doesn't that mean the city's vulnerable? Vulnerable to what? God has dominated evil forever, so leave those beautiful gates open. They will bring into, bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. This is the inheritance of the saints. These are the glorious riches that you inherit if you're a child of God. So what what are the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints? Look at Revelation 21. And you know what? It's like snow. It's like sailing. It's like marriage. You just got to come with me and see. You got to come experience heaven and then you'll know. And then you'll know. Look at verse 19. 
What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Immeasurable greatness. Were you to discover some quantum, some increment, some currency or tender by which you might quantify and then measure the greatness of God, you would find that it is immeasurable. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Toward, that's a frightening preposition. That immeasurable greatness is toward us. It's a terrifying concept until you realize what it's for according to the working of his great might. It is his redemptive purposes that are at work in us. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. See the immense role the church plays in God's redemptive plan. God has decreed all this beautiful glory, this hope for the saints, this glorious inheritance for the saints. And in all of it, the church plays a critical role in that redemptive plan. As we continue to study the book of Ephesians, you're going to see the church itself described as the very body of Christ, that we would embody God on the earth. There was a time in redemptive history wherein the presence of God was between the tips of the seraphim's wings at the mercy seat and the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the chest that was used in Old Testament worship. There was a time when the presence of God on the earth was in the Holy of Holies at the epicenter of the epicenter, the temple in Jerusalem where worship took place. But now, in the New Testament era, where dwells the Holy Spirit? Within believers. And when we come together, we embody Christ on the earth. The church holds a tremendous role in God's redemptive plan. It's a beautiful, beautiful calling indeed. This language in verse 22 of putting all things under his feet, it's echoed in Hebrews 2, verse 5 through 8. The opening chapters of Hebrews, Hebrews 1 and 2, are very are heavily Christological and they're useful in answering questions often asked by Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons about Jesus versus the angels. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This line from Hebrews 2, what is man that you are mindful of him, comes from Psalm 8. When I was writing curriculum for Lifeway, I had the chance to speak with some of the faculty of Harvard Divinity School. And I brought my family to Boston. We saw all the beautiful things to see, had the delicious chowder, saw a game at Fenway. And en route to meet some people at Harvard Square, I passed across the severed quadrangle and passed in front of Emerson Hall. Emerson Hall is one of the oldest buildings on the Harvard campus. It houses the philosophy department. It's named for Ralph Waldo Emerson, an alumnus of Harvard. When it was built in 1905, the apocryphal yet persistent fable says that the philosophy faculty decided upon a quote from Protagoras to be inscribed and etched in the stone above the north facade facing the quadrangle. That every time people would walk in and out, they would see this quote written above them. And what they chose from Protagoras embodied to them the spirit of the Renaissance Man is the measure of all things they chose and went home for summer vacation, 
ready to return to their newly built philosophy headquarters at Harvard. Yet, C.W. Eliot, Harvard president at the time, against the wishes of the philosophy department, decided instead upon this quote from Psalm 8. Rather than seeing the quote from Protagoras embodying the Renaissance, they come home to see a statement embodying the spirit of the Reformation. What is man that thou art mindful of him? <laughs> I give you the north facade of Emerson Hall at Harvard University. Now, this has several dimensions of irony to it. For one thing, Emerson himself was a transcendentalist and a man-centric pantheist. He is quoted as saying in his journals, in all of my lectures I have taught one doctrine, namely the infinitude of the private man. <laughs> Yet his namesake building reads, what is man that thou art mindful of him? I find that funny. Moreover, in my interactions with the faculty of Harvard Divinity School, I met one Christian. The Divinity School. One Christian. Moreover, moreover, the crest of Harvard, the oldest college, okay, founded before calculus was discovered. You understand that? The crest of Harvard is Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, meaning truth for Christ and the church. And here, one of the oldest buildings, right in the heart of the quadrangle, Emerson Hall, reads, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Indeed, what are we that God is even mindful of us? Consider the vastness of his omnipotence and perfection and consider our depravity and what we are prone to left to our own devices. What is man that thou art mindful of him indeed? Is it not God's prerogative to flick us away as sinful ants? It is his prerogative. Who would correct God on such a rebuke? But that is not what God does. Instead, he draws us near as his children. Aren't you grateful for the mercy of God? What is man that thou art mindful of him? And yet you draw us near. You adopt us and give us, the, give us the glorious riches of the inheritance of the saints. You give us knowledge that surpasses our teachers. You give us the foundation for truth himself. You give us hope that is indestructible come what may. And all of this is so that we might be the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As we continue in our study of Ephesians, we get to chapter four, we'll talk more about what it means to be the body of Christ as a church. When we get to chapter five, we'll talk more about what it means to be the bride of Christ. And this beautiful definition for marriage. But in the meantime, would, would you invite as many people as you possibly can into this glorious inheritance in the saints? You've stumbled upon the riches given to the children of God and been commissioned with the great commission to make disciples of all nations to bring as many people in as you possibly can. This is the means by which I believe God will bring revival to the Pacific Northwest. Disciples making disciple makers. Do you understand? This is too glorious to hoard. It must be shared, it must be announced. You must walk with others in it and show them how to invite others to walk in it as well. And the, the, the effect that such growth would have on the church is difficult to envision. When you wrap your head around the mathematical implications of it, it's quite beautiful. 
When you consider what happens as we grow, not just by addition, believers sharing the gospel and adding on a believer at a time, but growing by multiplication as disciples make disciple makers, the trajectory of the church's growth is truly immense. It's a beautiful thought. And I, I wanted to put something together that would help kind of illustrate this and show what's possible. When you go from Paul as he authored Ephesians to Paul as he authored First and Second Timothy, not just sharing the gospel himself, but also equipping others to do likewise, would you welcome some of the drummers of Highlands as they help me illustrate what's possible? Discipleship. It goes like, it goes like this. It goes like this. Do what I do. It goes like this. Do what I do. Now get someone else. Disciple him too. Good steps now. Do what I did. Baptism serving who you walking with. Steps now, do what I do. Lead someone to Christ, then baptize them too. It goes like this, do what I do. When I do ministry, you're there too. It goes like this, do what I do. Do what I do, then teach them too. How revival starts. It's not audacious, not even new. We are merely the latest in a legacy of discipleship dating back to Paul and Timothy. This is how revival starts. Can you hear the war drums? Can you envision the growth? Make disciples who bring revival. Make disciples who make disciples. I'm your Paul. You're my Timothy. Take over. It's your time. This is not about me. Help me cheer on my disciple, Timothy. Go, Timothy. Go, Timothy. Go, Timothy. Go, Timothy. Go, Timothy. Be strengthened in the faith. I fought the good fight. I've run the good race. I have to go to Rome. You lead the church at Ephesus, Timothy. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Bring revival, Timothy. Make disciples who make disciples. God desires that all people come to a knowledge of the Savior. So make disciples, make disciples who make disciples, make disciples who make disciples, make disciples. Church, do you see what's possible? Do you see what happens when you make disciples who make disciples and the church grows by multiplication rather than by addition? Some of you have been writing the book of Ephesians and that's beautiful, but remember, Paul would hand the reins over to Timothy, whose books we've already read. 
would you consider that you as a Christian, you may have been walking with God for 90 years and you're wondering what's next. It could be that you have to go from writing Ephesians to writing First and Second Timothy to showing people how to show people the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what is possible as you walk alongside your own Timothy and equip him, equip her to make other disciples. Then new believers take their ranks and the war drums grow. And then in Jesus' name, revival envelops the whole Pacific Northwest. Amen. If the Holy Spirit of God has drawn upon your heart to be saved today, I want to lead you in a simple prayer, praying John 3.16, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, John 14.6, and Romans 10.9. And if you're a believer in Christ who has yet to enact this call unto discipleship, to make disciples who make disciples, would you go before the Lord today in light of this picture of what might be as we grow by multiplication, please join me in prayer before God. God, I want to pray on behalf of Christians in this room who have not been discipling others, who haven't yet understood that we're to grow by multiplication. I pray, Father, that this indelible picture will be burned into their retinas and they might envision what could be as they, just as Paul did upon writing to the church at Ephesus and then handing the reins over to Timothy, empower young people with ministry to do and to coach them in how to walk alongside others, showing them their next steps. Showing them, okay, you've been saved, now it's time to be baptized. You've been baptized, it's time to join a group. You're in a group, it's time to use your gifts to serve. Using your gifts to serve, it's time to give. You've been giving, it's time to evangelize. You've been evangelizing, it's time to disciple somebody else now. Lord, we hear the war drums rising. We see the glorious riches, the inheritance that is there for the saints. And in obedience to your great commission, fulfilling your will as decreed in Revelation 21, wherein all the nations bring their glory in. God, we fully intend to make disciples of Jesus Christ all around Renton, all around Kent, to give people the hope and healing of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to help people find and follow Jesus, and to make disciples, God, stagnant no more. May we show others how to show others how to walk with Jesus. God, I want to pray on behalf of the skeptic, my skeptical friend, who came here drawn by your spirit and doesn't even know it. God, your Holy Spirit is drawing on my heart. I didn't believe in you until I walked in this room, but I've seen your glory of your word and I believe it's true. I've felt the drawing of your Holy Spirit. I believe he's near. I believe that Jesus is alive. I believe John 3, 16. I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life. I believe, God, Romans 3.23 is true. I confess it. I have sinned and I have fallen short of the glory of God. And I believe Romans 6.23, the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe John 14.6. I believe that Jesus is the way. I believe that Jesus is the truth. I believe that Jesus is the life. And I know there's no way I can come to you, Father, except through Jesus. And so drawn by the Holy Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Would you stand and worship?
worship with us, some of us for the very first time as brand new believers in Jesus Christ that's Lord.